0: So we've been, we've been doing a series through the book of Acts as we study the life of Paul, calling it How the Apostle Paul Changed the World, kind of unstuck. And so it's interesting to me, when people come to the end of their life, they want to believe that what they have fought for and worked hard for actually mattered. But it's also very interesting that people who are influential, even though they made a great impact on the world, often do not believe that they did so. Robert Louis Stevenson, the author who wrote Treasure Island and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, had written on his epitaph Here lies one who meant well, who tried a little and failed much. But then we also see the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. He wrote later in his life, My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something would be the result of my existence beneficial to my species. Isn't it really fascinating that these two men who were world changers, who made a huge impact on their world, thought of their lives in this way? But I think a lot of us can relate to this mindset because we often will evaluate our own life and start to wonder whether we really have made an impact. We all want to leave that kind of impact on the world for the good of those we love, but we often don't know how to do that. And as Christians, we know there's a little bit of something different that we are supposed to leave a legacy of faithfulness and devotion to Jesus and bring others to him throughout our entire life. So then how can we be confident that we are making an impact on this world and doing what the Lord has called us to do? Well, here's my advice for us this morning. To complete the task that God has placed before us. So we're going to look this morning at three mindsets for us to be able to complete this task. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look through verses 17 through 38. I encourage you to grab a Bible that if you need it, if you're here with us this morning, uh, they are, there are some hardback Bibles in front of you. They'll be a page on page 1115. And you can join us online on your phone or with your hardback Bible at home. But the book of Acts is about the disciples of Jesus continuing the mission of Jesus to bring heaven to earth and to make disciples of all nations. And so the story we're going to look at this morning takes place during Paul's third missionary journey through the Mediterranean region. And so here's a quick little map just so we get a little geography and understanding of where we are at during this time. We have... Apostle Paul started in Antioch where the Gentile Christian church really got started and really grew quickly. And so it became kind of the hub of Christianity for a little bit. And they move, And so Paul moved and he visited old churches he had seen before, like Ephesus and Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth. But then he eventually comes to Miletus, which is where our story will be this morning. But the speech that he gives today is one where it is the only one that we have of Paul that is exclusively given to Christians. And so it sounds a lot like his letters that he wrote. And so he is reminiscing here about his ministry and he's going to review the character of his missionary work and he's going to warn of potential dangers for the church. And as well, give them a lesson for their future survival and so let 's begin verses seventeen and eighteen from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church when they arrived, he said to them, "You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia and so the city Miletus it 's about a day 's journey from Ephesus, and Paul wants to gather the elders of the church at Ephesus to him." And this is something we have to know. He had spent three years previously with the church at Ephesus. So there was this really close relationship with the elders there. He had set up these men, these elders, to lead the church, to carry on what Paul had started so that he could continue to go and start new churches But Paul is actually defending his ministry in this passage because he has faced faced criticism for various reasons like his preaching, where he has specifically traveled to, or why he has not taken financial help while he is in the cities, uh, from the cities he is currently visiting. And so these critics are trying to discredit his ministry and his teaching, and they're trying to pull converts away from Jesus, from Paul, into their own understanding. And so what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to defend his ministry, and he's teaching them to protect their people in their faith in Jesus so that they won't fall away. And we're going to see a little bit more of that in a while. But in this story, Paul is giving a final speech to these churches that he has planted because he believes that he is soon going to suffer and die. So this is sort of like a last will and testament that he is giving to these churches. Verse 19. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So notice that Paul says here that he is serving the Lord. He's not serving the people. He wasn't trying to please people first and foremost, but please God with what he was doing. But also, Paul wasn't bombastic in making personal claims about himself, but instead he served in humility despite all of the hostility that he faced. And he was facing it from these Jewish opponents who were likely people who came along trying to convince New Gentile Christians to get circumcised and to follow certain laws of the Jewish faith in order to be real Christians in their mind. Which this is something that Paul and the other apostles expressly rejected as part of this new Christian faith. Especially for those who were Gentile Christians. But Paul in this passage is also showing them what it means to be a servant of Jesus. Because for followers of Jesus who want to pursue this kind of mission lifestyle like Paul is doing, they are going to face difficulties, trials, persecution, and they're going to have to learn to stand firm in their faith in Jesus and learn to stand firm, to stick to preaching the gospel. Let's see that in verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. So Paul did not shrink back from speaking what the Lord had told him to speak. He is staying faithful to the Lord. But Paul is speaking both encouraging things and also things that are going to challenge and convict the people he is speaking to. And so a little bit of a sidebar note here. If all we ever want to hear is encouragement when it comes to our following of Jesus— I promise us we will never fully hear the counsel of God because there are times that God needs to consistently and lovingly convict us of our sin so that we can learn to walk more fully faithful and in righteousness with him. So my just little piece of advice on this sidebar, do not just fill yourselves exclusively with those things that are only going to encourage But find people and teachers who are going to lovingly speak the truth to you in order to help convict you of sin because this is something we all need and to help us remember the grace of Jesus too who forgives us. But Paul is also saying here that his life and his teaching were consistent no matter where he went. Whether it was in public or in private or the various houses he visited to share the gospel, he was the same. He was consistent in all of it. He wasn't teaching one thing in public to the masses and then something else for all of the elite in private. Instead, it was all the same and it was all for the benefit of those who would be hearing him. And we'll see later, it wasn't for a personal gain for himself, but to point others to Jesus. Verse 21 I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And so, in many ways, this verse right here is the summary of Paul's basic message repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. And so these two things, they actually go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And so in doing research for this week, I came across a great quote about this passage from biblical scholar Daryl Bach. This is what he had to say. Repentance to God represents a change of direction in how one relates to God. So when we r- truly p- repent, we're saying to our old life, I am changing my direction. My focus is this direction towards God, towards Jesus. It's changing your mind about who is the ruler of your life. But then repentance entails faith in Jesus so that the turning results in one placing trust in what God did through Jesus as one embraces his person and Work. And so to have true faith means that it is turning away. We are trusting Jesus and what He did for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. And so this repentance is what Paul continued to preach everywhere to every single one of his audiences. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, he did adapt his message culturally where it was appropriate, but his core message stayed the same no matter where he went. Because All humans have sinned. We have all fallen short of God's perfect moral standard. And so as a result, we are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And God provided those things through sending his sinless son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place. And then when Jesus rose again three days later, defeating sin and death, it showed that his death on the cross was enough to pay the debt of each and every one of our sins. Past, present, and future. So that when we repent, change our direction to look towards Jesus and have faith in Jesus, we are now reconciled to God. We are made one with him. You see, Paul was relentless in sharing this message wherever he went. He was also consistent with it. But he did this no matter what the consequences would be for sharing it. He faced riots, beatings, imprisonment, being stoned nearly to death, and so much more on this journey. And we see why in verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So no matter what he's doing, he is always compelled by the Spirit. God is leading him in everything. But in this sense, Paul is sensing the Spirit leading him toward Jerusalem, even though he knows this is going to result in hardships coming his way. And actually, if you keep reading in the story in Acts chapter 21, Paul is going to be warned by a prophet named Agabus that he is going to be put in chains for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And so it's actually interesting. In other stories, Paul avoided situations like this. He would catch wind that they were going to kill him, and he would actually escape. He would get away. But this time, he is heading straight for it. And so in this story, Paul is actually working in concert with the Holy Spirit for what is coming for him. Because he's acting in ways that don't make worldly sense. We would think, I'm in danger, I need to go the other direction. But instead, Paul is going to go towards it, and that's the Spirit of God leading him. And so he doesn't know what's going to happen to him beyond the imprisonment and the suffering he's going to face But the Holy Spirit has warned him in the past that hardships have come. And in this case, it's going to be no different for him. Verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has, Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You see, for Paul, the only aim for him was to finish what the Lord had placed in front of him, and if that meant his death, then so be it. He's going wherever the Spirit leads him, because walking with God is of utmost worth to him, more than anything else that could be offered to him by this world. And so as a result, he viewed his life as absolutely nothing to him. Paul said elsewhere in his letter to the Philippian church, he said, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You see, whatever Paul gained for losing his life was Jesus himself. He was worth so much more. And Paul's comparison here, when he says garbage, that's just a really polite way of of translating that word. Because that word could literally mean a pile of refuse of dung. That's what Paul was saying. This is my old life compared to knowing Jesus in comparison. And so he was saying it is so worth following Jesus that it doesn't my life is nothing to me because of what I gain from him. And I think sometimes we struggle with this concept of knowing that maybe suffering or death is going to come. And in our culture, even as Christians, we so fear the idea of death that we try to remove all hints of it. We find we find ways to make ourselves look younger, and we don't value as much the wisdom that comes with age, but instead value youthful looks and exuberance. But instead. Paul compares his life to a race and that it's important to finish this race really well, to complete the task that has been put in front of him by God, which was to preach the gospel. And this task is for us. So here's our first mindset to complete this task. It's to relentlessly share the gospel. And so notice how Paul just won't quit. He won't give up no matter what happens to him. He just keeps on going. And it actually kind of reminds me, I don't know if all of you are fans like I am of the Marvel cinematic universe. I love those movies. And it reminds me of Captain America. He gets beat up, and then he would say, I can do this all day. I love that. I love that concept. And for Paul, his devotion to this mission of making disciples of all nations cannot be quenched. It cannot be stopped. He even said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so you couldn't corner him. You couldn't beat Paul because he would just keep going. No matter what he did, he would say, oh, you kill me? Okay, to die is gain. Awesome. He says, you beat me? Cool. I get to suffer for Jesus. You could not hinder this man in anything. And so I want us to think about something for a second. Would we characterize our sharing of the gospel as relentless? And if not, how would we characterize it instead? And trust me, I understand we live in an extremely tense and difficult time as fo- to live as followers of Jesus in this culture, in this world, especially in the state of Oregon. But it is imperative that we have this mindset. And so how do we get there? The number one advice I've always been given by people in my life, and now I give to other people, is to continually cultivate your relationship with Jesus and see more and more how he has saved you. You will only share the gospel relentlessly when it has been relentlessly worked out in your own life. So my encouragement this morning is ask the Lord to work powerfully in you, to change you, mold you, shape you, correct you, convict you, but guide you to the grace and truth of Jesus, which he will do lovingly. Because that is what happened in Paul's life. And so if it happened for Paul, who was a guy who was out there imprisoning and killing Christians, and he became the greatest missionary of the Christian faith in human history, it can happen for you. If God could do it for such a person who was truly so evil at one point in his life to become the greatest missionary, he can do it for you. Verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. So this is kind of a clunky translation just because Greek sometimes has really long words and it's very hard to translate these literally. But what he's saying here is he's extremely confident he's never going to see these Ephesian elders again with whom he labored for three years. He loves these men and they love him in return. And so hearing these kinds of statements, I'm sure this would have hit them really hard. But we need to ask the question, why does Paul say he is innocent of their blood? Well, verse 27 tells us. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and on, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So what he's saying is he's innocent of their blood because he didn't withhold any part of the will of God for them. In other words, he told them everything they needed to know in order to believe in Jesus, but also everything they needed to know to keep following him throughout the rest of their life. He held nothing back from them. So now it's on them to continue doing it, to follow through with what he said. He's now washed his hands clean of responsibility because he has done everything. He's told them everything. And Paul is repeating previous advice as well that he's given to them in the past. Because these men were leaders in the church, they needed to watch over themselves and their flock. When I was a young youth pastor in my first youth pastor job, I actually burned myself out because I was working so hard to care for my students and the people under my care that I actually did a terrible job of keeping watch over myself and how I followed Jesus. And so pastors and other spiritual leaders must do both really well to care for themselves and to care for the people under them. But I also want you to notice something else, that Paul says it's the Holy Spirit who has made these men overseers and leaders in their church. The idea is it's appointment language. They have been appointed for this job by the Holy Spirit. They didn't earn it in any worldly sense, but the Holy Spirit picked them and appointed them for the job. And the evidence For this appointment is how they have grown in maturity in following Jesus. But their main job, their number one job that they were to be doing was to be shepherds of the flock that God has given to them. And so this is actually the main description of what a pastor is in the New Testament. He is not a motivational speaker or a marketing leader. He is a shepherd guiding his people. And a shepherd's job in biblical times was to lead, guide, and protect his flock. And in a spiritual sense, that is what pastors and spiritual leaders must be doing. But shepherds, we need to understand, were also not highly viewed in ancient times. They were social outcasts because they often would smell like their sheep. They were out in the fields for long periods of time and maybe lost some social cues from spending all their time with sheep. And so they had a pretty low value on the social value structure. And so using the term shepherd for a pastor would often mean that the job was someone that was set apart, a call to serve and to do what no one else would do to serve the Lord and to guide and protect and lead their people. But this flock that they were given was purchased and bought by the blood of Jesus, which then put a very significant burden and weight to the responsibility of what a pastor is supposed to be doing. And that's because Jesus gave himself up for the people of the church. He died in their place on the cross. And so the price paid for this church is absolutely sacred. So as such, our role as pastors is not one to dominate or coerce anybody but to shepherd and guide through trust, love, and spiritual maturity. And so Paul is reminding these men of the task that was put in front of them to shepherd their flock well. Verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And so Paul is giving them a warning that he's actually given before. There are going to be false teachers that will arise even from your own people, from within your own numbers, who are going to try and lead people astray. They're thinking in their own head, these false teachers, that they're teaching the right things, but the enemy is using it because it's not the truth of Jesus to lead people away. And so this is why it's so important for us to understand what we believe as Christians, that we stay faithful to Jesus, to understand the Bible, to understand who Jesus is, what it means to follow Jesus. Because false teachers are everywhere trying to lead you astray from following Jesus. The enemy wants nothing more than for you to doubt what God says. Did God really say that? Is that what that passage really means? You see, what's the problem with it if it doesn't really hurt anybody else? I'm going to show you something really quick. I got sent this by Dan Sides, who's working in the uh, stream room this morning. Sorry, Dan, I didn't respond to your email when you sent this to me. But you see this. You can see from 2007 to 2021, we have had almost a 1% decrease of Christian or people, U.S. adults, who identify as Christians, but in some ways we have had a almost 1% on year-over-year average of people now identifying with no religion. And when we see statistics like this, we always want to ask the question, why? And so my theory has been this for a while, because I believe the decline in American Christians is due largely to poor training and raising of followers of Jesus in the home and in churches. This is the way that we truly can guard ourselves best against false teachers that we come across by arming ourselves with the truth of Scripture and training our people and children on what we believe and then how to live it, which is the direction of where this church is heading to make disciples who make disciples. And so Paul gives one last piece of advice in this section so be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So he's saying, be on guard, be ready, be constantly on the watch. And Paul says this, he did this night and day with them with, with tears because he cared so deeply for them. And so here's our second mindset to complete the task. is to be on guard against false teaching. See, we need to never assume that simply because a Christian label is slapped on to something that it accurately portrays Jesus or the Bible. Notice how Paul told the Ephesian elders that some of these false teachers would come from within their own people. You see, there are, I believe there are many who get Christian book deals, music contracts, and appear on the news representing the Christian viewpoint that we need to be very careful careful of and steer clear from because what they teach runs contrary to Scripture and so we have to ask how do we know who is and who is not a false teacher well Jesus gave us a very simple test what is the fruit that results from their life because he said by their fruit you will recognize them you will recognize false teachers and let me make this clear The fruit is not about their successes, accomplishments, results, but about how they live their lives. Because there's been a lot of very false teachers out there who have grown very large movements as a result of their teaching. But remember this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And notice that Paul there, that's in Galatians 5, says fruit, singular, not fruits. So they are all increasing at once, all together. It's one fruit. And so those who do not have this fruit in their lives, who are teachers, who are out there teaching things. And yes, we also need to check their doctrine and what they believe. But these types of people can wreak havoc on those that they lead rather than guiding them toward Jesus. So this is why it is really, really important and essential that we don't elevate public teachers too highly in our minds that we don't get to know on a personal basis and we can't check their lives and we only see them through a screen or their Instagram feed. But instead, look for teachers in your life and when you're around them and you see them, examine their lives for the fruit of the Spirit to know whether they are true or false teachers and if their teaching matches up with what Scripture teaches. And it is also important that each and every one of us knows the truth of Scripture for ourselves. God's Word lays it out for us, and there are innumerable resources now out there on the internet to teach us that we can pick and choose from. But you can also join a growth group. Use these journals. Start a Bible reading plan in the, brand, in the new year as a New Year's resolution. But most of all, ask God's Spirit to lead you to the truth of His Word that's something that is a daily practice of mine when i spend time in the word is i ask god's spirit to lead me to the truth of what he's trying to say there let's continue verse 32 now i commit you to god and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified i have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing So this word commit, what it means here is that Paul is giving them over to God for divine care and protection, that he would be their shepherd. Paul is committing them to God because he believes he's never going to see these men again. So God is going going to continue this work because Paul cannot. But he also commits them to the word of grace. In other words, the gospel of Jesus, that we were sinners, we could not save ourselves, and Jesus came and did the work for us and paid the price this gospel, this good news, can build people up to maturity in Christ and then gives them an inheritance among the people of God. And so this inheritance is not merely going to heaven someday when you die. I need, we need to understand this. Because the inheritance of God is about this ability to fellowship and know God intimately and eternally like we were created to be in the Garden of Eden. This whole thing about following Jesus is about recreating that Garden of Eden fellowship that we were meant to have, that we all long for. And so Paul also wanted to make sure, beginning in verse 33, to clarify that his motives with them were totally pure. He was faithful to God that had, uh, by what God had placed in front of him. He wasn't looking to gain financially from, him, from them because there were teachers— that did things similarly to Paul, that would travel around to different cities, they would teach new things, and then they would look to gain financially from it. They wanted to earn money for it. And so Paul was trying to make sure, I am not doing the same thing here. So when he visited a town, he didn't collect money from the people in those towns. He would receive offerings from people outside those towns to help provide for him. But instead, he sought to provide for himself. Verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. So he sought to provide for himself through his own business as being a tent maker. And he would make tents in whatever town he would go to to start new churches. And I assume that this is a part of the way that he would then meet new people in these cities. And so he used it to supply for his own needs and for his people with him so that he wouldn't look like those other teachers who simply came around to teach and gain financially from it. Verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul's motive in all of this was to be a model for them, to be an example to them, to work hard, help the weak, and that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But too often, I think we hear this word blessed, and we immediately assume that it means material or even relational blessings. But the word in Greek simply means happy. And we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but giving unto others makes one more happy or joyful than simply taking from others. Verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So this is a really tender moment for Paul and these elders at the end of this speech. And remember, Paul had been with them for three years, praying with them, crying with them, discipling them, mentoring them. So of course, this response made total sense that they thought they would never see him again. But lastly, to close this morning, I want us to consider one last mindset, is that we need to serve faithfully for the benefit of others, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. I took a class this last term from my seminary work about pastoral counseling, and here's what one of the authors of a textbook I had to read had to say about this idea. When I deal with men and women in counseling who are depressed, I generally encourage them to begin caring for the needs of others. It is amazing what happens to us when we change the focus from our deficits to the needs of others. And so in other words, there is a beautiful God-given joy that comes when we shift our focus away from benefiting ourselves and instead seek to benefit others instead. And so for me, when I look at that passage, the statement, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's not about giving a lot of money so we can expect receiving back some material blessings, but it's about serving and giving with an attitude to better someone else's life. And that can actually give us a greater joy. That was the, Paul, the motivation for Paul's life, and that's what needs to be our own. So we must ask ourselves the question, what has been our motivations to serve and give? How have we thought of it? Is it out of duty and responsibility, or is it so that others may benefit and come to see Jesus through our example? Because that's what needs to be our motivation. And I know that I have messed that up in my own life. When I was a young count, camp counselor, and this is not something I'm bragging about. This is just kind of the truth of the situation. I, w- I was pretty popular with the campers uh, at Camp Tapawingo, and I struggled at the same time very mightily with my own self-image and anxiety. And so because of that, I became sort of intoxicated with feeling this kind of popularity that I had never felt before. And so my serving became based more on myself to be popular than, rather than on serving these kids. But over time, the Lord has shown me over and over again how simple that mindset was. And he's helped me to learn to serve for him and for the good of others. And I can confidently say, I've learned that and can experience more joy because of it. But to close this morning, I want us all to visualize for a second, not in a morbid sense, but just reality. What do you want people to say about you when you come to the end of your life? And how you serve Jesus. Who is that person? What are they like? What kind of legacy are they leaving? A faithfulness, devotion to Jesus. And then look at yourself now. How are they different from the person that you are right now? And if you see a significant difference between who you are now and who you want to be someday. And how you want people to talk about you. I have good news for you. You see, the God who has given each of us the task to make disciples who make disciples is the same God who said, and I will be with you always when we are on that mission. So you need to understand, you are not alone. And whatever you want to ask God to do in you, to make you that person you envisioned just a minute ago, he will be faithful to finish it and bring it about in your life. He will not leave you to yourself to figure it out. He is with you. He will guide you. He will guard you and he loves you. So ask him this morning to do that work in you and he will do it. And so how can we learn to complete the task given to us to relentlessly share the gospel with those around us? How can we learn then to protect ourselves against the influence of false teachers in our culture and society? And finally, what are some ways that we can have our mindset change about why we serve others so that it's about others rather than for ourselves? And finally, remember to complete the task God has placed before us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are good. Thank you that you are loving, you are kind, you are gracious, you are merciful. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. You are our good shepherd who stands by our side and walks alongside us as we try and serve you. God, we are not left to figure it out for ourselves, but you are with us every step of the way, providing us your spirit to enable us on that mission. So Jesus, I pray this morning that we would not be content with just being good Christians, but God, to be passionate followers of you to make a difference in this world and leave a lasting legacy because we sought to complete the task of making disciples who make disciples. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.